Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm the managing partner of Brady Ware Arpeggio, a data-driven management consultancy which brings clarity to owners and managers of unique businesses facing unique strategic decisions. Our parent, Brady Ware & Company, is sponsoring this podcast. Brady Ware is a public accounting firm with offices in Dayton, Ohio, Alpharetta, Georgia, Columbus, Ohio, and Richmond, Indiana. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. I also host a LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck, so please join that as well if you would like to engage. Today's topic is, should I allow or gasp, even encourage my company to unionize? And um, I I think this is an important topic and a very timely topic. And as we have discussed at various points since the pandemic started 5,000 years ago, um, our relationship with work or our society's relationship with work and labor uh, I think has changed. And I, I think very few people debate that. I think only, the only debate is whether or not that change is a good one or a bad one. Um, and, and we're not going to debate that here. That's not our role. Um, and I'm not even sure that there's a right answer to it. Um, but but one of the one of the ways in which the nature of work has changed is for the first time in a long time, I'm maybe in my lifetime, and I'm 52 years old now, um, we're seeing an, in, an increased interest in union, unionization. Um, for whatever reason, I suspect it has to do with, with a lot of things. I think it has to do with wage inequality. I think it has to do with the desire for people to self-actualize at work. Uh, I think it has to do with, with the fact that you know, healthcare um, is is tied to employment uh, and 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 other reasons as well, uh, but there has been an uptick in an interest to unionize. Um, uh, one Amazon warehouse, I believe, in New York has successfully unionized. Was on the verge of doing so. I've forgotten. Um, uh, Starbucks is right now fighting a mass unionization event. And uh, the, the thought was that if they brought back their founder for a third time, Howard Schultz, that guy retires more than Brett Favre ever did, um, that they would be able to head off the unionization path. But that doesn't seem to be cutting it. And, and there does seem to be an uptick now in unionization. And for many of us, I think particularly if you're under the age of, of, of 40 or maybe even 50, you know, most of us don't remember a world in which large parts of the economy were unionized. I've never worked in a union shop. I don't think I've even had a client that has had a unionized labor force. Um, uh, now, part of that is because I live in Georgia. It's a right-to-work state. 
Um, but but the fact of the matter is, or at least just the fact of the matter, my observation is that is that as unionization gains steam, I think we as a society are having to refamiliarize ourselves with unionization almost all over again. It's been out there for government jobs, teachers, unions, things like that. We encountered for good or ill with the Screen Actors Guild. You know, oddly enough, Ronald Reagan was actually the chairman of the Screen Actors Guild for a while. Um, and, you know, gosh, we, we sure do love it when, when professional sports leagues go on strike. And we just love their unions and millionaires and billionaires fighting over their, uh, their vast sums of revenue. But on a day-to-day basis, you know, I think you know, most of us don't remember a world, and certainly we've never had to manage a business in a world where unionization, for the most part, was a thing. And so, uh, again, I'm not advocating for or against unionization, but I do think the topic is now timely. And, and we're going to have to, as a society and as business people, come to grips with understanding what unionization is. Is it fair to have a knee-jerk reaction, which many people do, that unions are, are automatically bad for business and they're a disaster, or you know what what does it what does it actually mean? So, uh, other than what I just told you, uh, I don't know very much about the topic. I've just spent the last five minutes basically revealing and revealing my ignorance. So, joining us today and returning to the show actually is John Hyman, who's a partner at Wickens, Herzer, and Panza. John is a nationally recognized author, speaker, blogger, and media source on employment and labor law. John's legal practice provides proactive and results-driven solutions to employers' workforce problems. He also works with businesses to help position them to best combat the ongoing risk of cyber crimes. John serves as outside in-house counsel role for business. In this role, he drafts policies and handbooks, audits, uh, human resources, and technology practices and procedures, advises companies on day-to-day human resource issues, and successfully litigates employee disputes. John has written two books, The Employer Bill of Rights and Manager's Guide to Workplace Law, and Think Before You Click, Strategies for Managing Social Media in the Workplace. John has appeared on the Fox Business Network, NPR, and locally on WEWS. He has also been quoted on workplace issues in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, NPR, MSNBC.com, Business Insurance Magazine, Crane's Cleveland Business, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Finally, John appeared on a November 1999 episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, but sadly lacked the fastest fingers. John, welcome to the Decision Vision Podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Mike, both for the introduction uh, and for the invite to have me back on. I really appreciate it. So we're going to start really, really basic because uh, I don't think this is necessarily obvious to everybody. What is a labor union? Yeah, it's not obvious to everybody, and it's a great starting question because we, uh, I think, like you said in your in your intro, we live in a world where it's something we haven't thought about. Businesses haven't thought about it. HR professionals haven't thought about it. A lot of employees, frankly, haven't thought about it. Um, so asking the very basic question, like, what is a labor union? Great kind of foundational place to start. And it, at its most basic level, a labor union is an organization um, that a majority of employees uh, in a unit within a business agree to join. And then on uh, behalf of those employees, that organization engages in collective bargaining with those employees' employer regarding 
their members, wages, hours, benefits, other other terms and conditions of their employment. But the key aspect of a union, uh, a labor union, and their relationship with both the employees and the employer is that the union, once they're in, they are the exclusive representative of the employees that that they're representing for all those issues, wages, hours, benefits, terms, conditions of employment. They are exclusive. They speak on behalf of the employees, um, and they are, in almost all cases, the only uh, entity that can speak on behalf of the employees on those issues. So, you know, at at, at my age, I kind of remember unions being a thing growing up. There were strikes. The UAW was pretty powerful teams was pretty powerful but since then unions have declined sharply um, to the point of being barely noticeable in my opinion anyway why did you labor unions decline across the united states over the last four decades yeah they peaked in the 50s the number that i see most often cited is around 35 percent of american workers were collectively bargained in the 1950s by the early 80s, that dropped to around 20%. And then if you look for a historic, like a historical event that started the real decline of labor unions, it's interesting that you mentioned Ronald Reagan in, in your opening, uh, because in addition to being uh, president of the state of the Screen Actors Guild, um, he was also the uh, uh, president when the air traffic controllers went on strike in 1981. Uh, and he famously busted that strike by replacing all 11,500 and so on air traffic controllers. He just fired them all and permanently replaced them, which an employer can do during a, during a, uh, a, during a labor stoppage. Um, and, and I think if you look for a, a kind of a historical snapshot in time as to what started the decline of organized labor, that's probably the event that uh, at least I look at is really starting organized labor's decline in the U.S. Um, but if you look at it, that's kind of on the, the micro level. If you look at it more on the macro level, I think if you look at all of the kind of alphabet soup of employment laws that protect employees in the workplace on a day-to-day basis, uh, Title VII, ADA, uh, America's Disabilities Act, ADEA, Age Discrimination and Employment Act, FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Act, OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, plug in your kind of alphabet soup of letters that that form some federal protection for, for employees. And there's you know dozens upon dozens of them. The question is, the question that I always come back to is like, are unions, I mean, what purpose do they serve in today's workplace? Are they relevant? Do they provide, are they necessary to provide employees the same level of protections that employees needed when organized labor really started in the 1920s and people were working, you know, 80 hours a week and, you know, in sweatshops for, you know, pittance wages, um, do they still serve that purpose? And the answer, I, the, my answer is no. And I think by and large, I think employees over at least over the last three or four decades have seen that as well um, and have said to themselves, you know, why pay a union dues? You know, why bring someone else in to speak for us when we can do this for ourselves? We have all these protections. The, the, whether inherently 
um, you know, implicitly or explicitly, I think employees just feel that unions uh, don't serve the purpose that they've historically needed them to serve. And then on top of that, um, employers um, have gotten in the last 30 or 40 years, very, very aggressive in what they've done to combat unions when unions uh, try to organize employees that have helped um, uh, uh, that have helped prevent unions from taking hold as well. So I think unions are kind of getting it from both sides. So we, we've that, that, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about I hadn't thought about how how worker protections as legislated made made labor feel that that unions became somehow obsolete i actually expected a different answer but that's that's fine i learned something so um why now why, why first of all i guess do you agree with my observation that unions may be making a little bit of a comeback i don't want to overstate it but i certainly hear more about union activity than i'm i'm used to hearing and if so why now uh, unions are definitely having their moments I think it remains to be seen how much of a foothold they will ultimately grab as a result of the push and momentum that they have. Unions right now are, and I'm going to take public sector out of the equation because it's a different, different, somewhat different set of rules and public sector unions never really declined the same way the private sector unions did. But in the private sector, unions are sit at about 6% of American workers are organized in the private sector. It remains to see kind of where that goes, but they're definitely having their moment. They are very high publicity organizing campaigns that have garnered a lot of headlines. Um, The JFK facility in Staten Island, New York, the first Amazon facility to organize, grabbed huge headlines. Starbucks right now, as you said, um, at the outset is facing uh, hundreds of organizing petitions um, and has had um, uh, tremendous success in the elections that have been held so far um, in getting Starbucks stores organized. I think as to why now, I think it's a I think there's a couple of factors that have come together at once. I think the pandemic has really played into the types of union talking point issues uh, where union organizers start talking to employees. The issues they're talking about are things like uh, workplace safety um, and, uh, you know, does management listen to you? Um, Do you you have a voice in how things occur in the workplace? Um, Culture, respect, all the issues that the pandemic really brought to the forefront in the workplace um, and that led to employees feeling a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction with their employers over the last two years, um, that really plays into the hands of the talking points that unions often use to kind of get traction with employees. I think when you couple that with, um, uh, and I, I always hate to make general, general uh, generational, generational generalizations, it's hard to say, um, generational generalizations, um, cause stereotypes, I mean, they'd have always have some kind of some basis in reality, but they're always often over-exaggerated, but here I think it, it is actually fairly, fairly instructive. A lot of what's going on, if you look at Amazon, if you look at Starbucks, these are not your, you know, grandfather steelworkers, labor unions. These are organizing drives that are being led by and large 
by um, you know, educated uh, uh, younger workers. And you have Gen Z that I think largely skews, at least in their belief structure, if you look, you know, take a look at like a Bernie Sanders rally, for example, like who's in the crowd, it's a lot of young people, right? Gen Z skews by and large, a lot more socialist in their beliefs than capitalist. Um, and you have a generation that over the last couple of years um, cut their teeth organizing, not around workplace issues, but around societal issues. Black Lives Matter rallies, George Floyd protests, LGBTQ rights. You're seeing it now around the uh, Roe v. Wade um, issues as well. You have a generation that has really cut their teeth learning how to organize around societal issues, and they are now focusing that lens inward on the workplace. So when you put that um, uh, generational attitude together with the issues that we've seen the pandemic highlight, it's really made a perfect storm for the current wave of wave and organizing that we're seeing. So I think unions are often portrayed as being anti-business, maybe even anathema to business. Is that a fair characterization? I think so, but I'm also an advocate for business. (laughs) I think think the union, I think union organizers uh, might disagree with that, but I, 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 I believe they are. I think when you look at from management's perspective, what happens when a union comes in, it definitely makes it more difficult to manage employees. You can't talk directly to employees anymore. You have to go through uh, a union rep, oftentimes kind of the lowest common denominator in the workplace from a performance standpoint is protected uh, because they have just cause protections and collective bargaining agreements. Um, So you can't just you know, fire an employee without cause for doing so. And sometimes that protects um, not always the best performers in the workplace. Um, things like, you know, seniority and longevity are often valued over things like merit in promotions, raises, transfers, and the like. And so from a, you know, does it make it harder to manage your business and manage your workforce when it's collectively bargained? Um, I think objectively the answer is yes, although I understand that if you had someone on coming from the union side, they would give you, I mean, they, they would certainly give you a much different answer to that question. So um, question I want to I, I wanna ask, because I think, I think this is going to gain a lot more visibility. Uh, you know, back in the early 20th century, the way that you prevented a union was you hired a bunch of guys that would come in and just beat up the labor, right? Beat up the workers or shoot them outright, right? Which has happened. Um, now, I don't think we're going to go back to that, but who knows the way society is going. But what are, I, I'd, love, uh, I'd love you to kind of just sort of um, be expositional in what are some common tactics that businesses will take to discourage uh, unionization of their workplace. And then I'd love to get into a discussion as to where is, where is the line between, where, where is the ethical line where maybe it's legal to do that, but maybe it's unethical? Um, I, I mean, you can take a look at, for example, what Starbucks is doing. You talked about, you know, uh, Howard Schultz being back in at Starbucks and he is stridently anti-union and they have taken a very aggressive stance to try to squash the campaign, uh, 
that's going on across the country at all these various uh, Starbucks stores. And I think their efforts have been largely unsuccessful because they are doing things like uh, allegedly, right. And there's, there's challenges filed all over in, at stores all over the country, um, retaliating, retaliating against organizers, um, firing them, cutting their hours and the like, um, holding what are called captive audience speeches that is putting everyone in a room and, you know, you're going to listen to us tell you why you shouldn't join the union. These are all things that to, that may have worked 40, 50, 60 years ago. They're not working today. And they're not working because they're playing right into the hands of the reasons why these organizers are telling workers they need to form a union in the first place, right? You need job protections. You need, you know, your management's out to get you. They're, you know, they don't have your best interest at heart. You don't have a voice at the table. They're not listening to your concerns. Um, as soon as you start firing organizers, uh, cutting their hours, or you know, trying to force them, trying to force them out the door, you're playing right into the hands of why the union's telling these people you should vote for us in the first place. And so, in my view. This is a different type of organizing than what we've seen in the past because of the generational issues I talked about before. I think employers need to take a much different, much softer approach to how they're um, opposing union organizing. And I'm not saying that softer approach means you need to open the door and welcome the labor unions in. Um, Some employers choose to do that. Um, uh, It... uh, 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 you know, Fair State Brewing, for example, in Minneapolis um, was organized a number of years ago. They were one of the first craft breweries in the U.S. to be organized by a union, um, and they chose to voluntarily recognize the union. Um, their their ownership saw it as uh, their like obligation as a democratic as a democratic business um, to promote you know, fairness and equity across their workers. And they, they chose to voluntarily recognize the union. Most employers don't do that. Most employers oppose the organ, oppose organizing drives. They fight hard on, uh, uh, you know, first collective bargaining agreements, uh, the first contract they're going to reach with their employees. Um, I just think that the, the retaliation, the, the, the heavy handed tactics that have historically worked in the past, um, illegal, right? Some of them, right? You can't retaliate. That's illegal. Uh, but that have been, even though illegal have proved to be successful because you scare employees off who don't want to lose their jobs. Um, you are, uh, those just aren't working anymore. So I think what is going to work for businesses is taking a more inward look at, you know, culture. Why is the union here in the first place? What are we doing wrong? Where are we failing our workers and you can't, and again, there's fine legal lines you have to you have to walk here. You can't make promises to employees to fix things during union during union organizing. That's an illegal promise. But it doesn't mean you can't do it on your own without promising employees you're going to do it. And so you got to figure out why employees are upset and then striving to do better for your employees. That's culture has always been the best. Uh, kind of the best way to fight union organizing. And it's even more important today because it's exactly the types of issues these organizers are hitting on. Um, so with, with, with respect to, to unionization and companies 
I put this? Yeah, my question is, how, how do companies sell to employees that they shouldn't unionize? What are the, what are the arguments that the companies make? Because it seems on the surface of I'm labor, it, it seems like union, I'm surprised unionization sort of hasn't come back. Why, you know, why? It seems like it's so clearly in their self-interest. Why, why don't they? How are, able, how are companies able to convince workers not to organize? Yeah, you know, it is. It's like, I mean, it, there's a number of things you can do. And again, there's it, there's a fine legal line you have to walk because you can't threaten workers. You can't interrogate workers about their union beliefs or how they're going to vote. You can't make them promises, right? And you can't spy on them or surveil them to figure out, you know, who's meeting with whom and what people are saying and whatever. So there is a fine there is a fine line you have to walk in terms of what you can do legally or what you can say legally um, and what you can't. Um, but it is factual, for example, that if, uh, you know, if a, a, you know, employees are telling you what the, the union, one of the union messages is, is that, you know, we need more money. It is factual to say, you know, there is one pie that's going to be divvied up. And that pie is not going to get bigger just because a union's coming in. And in fact, your pie might get smaller because in addition to um, the benefits that come out of your paycheck and other things, uh, you're paying union dues as well. You're paying union dues whether you vote for the union, whether you support the union or not, right? And so, um, you know, we just can't magically uh, create greater profits because uh, because a union comes in. And in fact, there's reports to suggest that profits actually um, uh, decrease uh, when uh, when unions uh, when unions come in. There's uh, a number of reports. I was looking at one this morning by the National Bureau of Economic Research um, that suggests that um, uh, share value. Uh, if you look at share value as a measure of profits, um, decreases ten to fourteen percent once a company is organized by labor. And so, if they're coming in looking for money. For, for higher wages, for example, if our share value is going to decrease 10 to 14%, if, if we organize, where, where's that extra money going to come from to pay wages? And on top of that, you're going to be paying union dues on top of that to the union. And so there are a number of talking points and you can't, you can't threaten employees by saying we will decrease your wages um, if you organize, but there is an economic reality to the situation that employees need, that employees need to understand as well. Um, telling employees that, you know, you're not going to be able to talk to us anymore. You're going to lose communication um, because the labor union uh, uh, becomes the exclusive, your exclusive representative. So we have to deal with the union. Now, Jennifer Ruzzo, who's the general counsel of the NLRB, is trying to take that talking point away from employers. She's trying to make it illegal for employers to, among other things, tell employees um, that uh, they'll lose the right to deal directly with uh, with an employer if a union comes in. Um, remains to be seen whether she's able to prevail on the National Labor Relations Board to make that change in the law, uh, but she's at least making that argument. So there are a number of you know there are a number of talking points um, that prove uh, that prove successful. But you know employers are fighting an uphill battle here. Um, Employees win, unions win a lot more elections than they lose. Um, annually, it's anywhere between 60 and 70% of elections are won by the labor unions, not by employers. 
Um, and we have historically the most pro-union National Labor Relations Board we've ever had. The NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, is the federal agency that governs union management relations. Um, they are stridently right now pro-union. Um, Jennifer Butzo, the general counsel, is trying to make a number of changes um, that would, uh, a number of very aggressive pro-union changes that are going to make that number uh, uh, even higher for you. It's going to make the union win, union win percentage um, even higher because it's going to make it that much more difficult for employers to oppose union organizing. Now, one thing that has not come up in this conversation, and I'm a little surprised now that we're about a half an hour into it, is the threat of relocation. I, I my, my misapprehension maybe, or my understanding was, I always kind of thought that that management always had the nuclear option of saying, you know what, if you're if if unionization becomes a threat, we are simply going to move to a a right to work state, or we're going to move out of the country to a low wage location. Um, am I overstating that threat, or not remembering, or for some reason is that does that threat no longer carry the weight that it once did? Uh, you, uh, you you can't make threats. So a threat a threat during union during union during union organizing is illegal, um, and so you actually can't. Uh, if you're making a statement with the word "will" in it, we will do this, we will do that. The odds are pretty good the NLRB is going to find that to be a, an unlawful or illegal threat, uh, and is going to find an unfair labor practice. So so you can't you can't do that. Um, one of the things that's interesting, though, it's interesting that you bring that up, and I think one of the things that's fueling what's going on in Starbucks, for example, is that's not and and the hospitality industry kind of in, in, at large is that you can't relocate a Starbucks to China or to Mexico, right? That whether that threat is explicit and unlawful or implicit and somehow passes scrutiny at the board, that threat carries no weight at a Starbucks at all because that Starbucks that's on that street corner, where's it going to move to? To the street corner across the street, it's going to have the same issues, but it's certainly not relocating to Mexico or to China because uh, that's a long way to go for your morning coffee. So um, so when we talk about kind of what's fueling the rise in organizing in industries like hospitality, um, which is... Uh, uh, where we're seeing a lot of this push right now, uh, that that lack of an implied threat of relocation, I think, is fueling a lot of it because there's just nowhere else for these stores to go. They're, they're, they are where they are. So if a business interferes, I want to dive into this. I think, I think this is really interesting. Getting really into brass tacks and in some cases brass knuckles. And that is, what are the penalties if, if, if the NLRB does find that a company has violated laws um, regarding impeding an organization effort, how, how are those fines calculated? Well, it's so if an employee's fired, for example, or in retaliation, um, that's going to be things like back pay and reinstatement for the terminated employee. If it's something more systemic on the organizational level, like making an illegal threat, uh, uh, to employees across the board, um, you might get a you might get a redo election where the board's going to say uh, we find because the board requires that elections be held in what's called laboratory conditions. So think of a laboratory as sterile, clean, pristine. 
that has to be the conditions around which that election is held. And if, there's, if the board finds those laboratory conditions did not exist because of unfair labor practices that took place during the campaign, um, the board could hold uh, a redo, could order a redo election. In the most egregious cases with egregious um, serial repeat unfair labor practices, the board could skip the election and could actually just order, could, can enter what's called a bargaining, enter what's called a bargaining order and just say, you know what, uh, we find that it's impossible to reach laboratory conditions here because these unfair labor practices were so severe, so pervasive. We don't find there's nothing we can order that's going to create those laboratory conditions on any redo election. So we're just going to say union wins, employer, you must bargain with the union. That's fascinating. And and, and I'm glad we touched upon this because it, it strikes me that, it, you know, f- taking Starbucks, for example, it would be hard to find Starbucks enough to make it worthwhile. And I kind of go back when I lived in uh, New York for, for a few years, I was struck by the fact that if you violated a traffic law, not only would there be a fine, but there would also be a court summons. And the reason they do that, right, is because there are enough rich people in Manhattan who say, you know what? 200 bucks that if, if it's if I'm going to a meeting that may make me a million dollars, I'll I'll double park and I'll pay the 200 dollars fine. But you tell that person you gotta show up in court and burn a day in court, that's the deterrent, right? And I was curious if the fine if the structure if there is sort of an agent principle problem where you can sort of say, well, you know, I'll just take the flag, they can only find me once. But it it sounds like that they actually have much stronger remedies where in an egregious case, in effect, the government by fiat can just say, bam, you're a union. Uh, they can, but then, but the union's just the first step. The second step is actually bargaining that first contract. And that's the next, um, it's the next arrow that an employer can pull out of its quiver if it wants to stay non-union is that, I mean, you have to, bar- you can't bargain in bad faith. You have to bargain in good faith. But as long as you're bargaining in good faith, you can bargain to an impasse. And if you bargain to a bona fide impasse, um, the employer can then uh, take its last proposal and implement that as the as the first, uh, uh, you know, as the terms and conditions of employment. And so um, there's always that kind of implied threat that hangs over the negotiations that uh, we're going to bargain to an impasse and the employer is going to do it at once anyway. And so there is a lot of that's where the employer's ultimate leverage is in getting, you know, in getting what it wants out of this, because the union is making all these promises to employees. We're going to get you, you know, a 10% raise. We're going to get you better benefits. We're going to get you better hours, better, whatever. And the employer can just dig its heels in and say, um, you know, no, (laughs) we we can't do that. Uh, And as long as they're doing that in good faith, and we can talk about what good faith looks like and what it means, but as long as they're doing it in good faith, um, there's not a lot the union can do because once you once you reach that once you reach that impasse, then the employer can uh, the employer can essentially do what it wants at that point. So, in your opinion, or or maybe a bit in your observation, are unions in the 21st century likely to look, act, behave differently than unions of the 20th century? And if so, how? Yes, um, they they will, and we're seeing that now. Um, in that. The, the unions that are the, the the unions that are driving the campaigns at Starbucks, the campaigns at Amazon, these are not your United Steelworkers, uh, uh, United Auto Workers, your kind of legacy unions. These are unions that have been you know, started 
by employees by and large. Uh, the, these are em- employee started, employee driven. Now they're being backed um, by large kind of legacy international, you know, corporate and I uh, corporate unions. And I say, I mean, let's not let's not kid ourselves. I mean, unions are a business no differently than the businesses they're on the other side of the bargaining table with them are businesses. Um, and these these employee driven campaigns are being backed by uh, are being backed by these legacy unions. They're given they're getting office space. They're getting legal support. They're getting uh, business support. They're, they're definitely being helped. But these are not the these are not the the unions that we're that we're used to seeing because these are largely started by run by managed by the employees of these organizations not by uh you know professional uh union business people so i would suspect that that union organizers and and advocates for unionization in general will hold up the example of countries in northern europe specifically germany and the nordic countries as examples of of strong union involvement that has not been destructive to their economies. Um, A, do you agree with that? And then B, what is it, what is it about, about those unions or those relationships that allows, allows those relationships to exist the way that they do, but still have economies that are, you know, are still pretty productive, pretty competitive. And can that, can that model realistically be replicated here? Uh, I'll answer the last part first, which is no, and let me explain why. And it's because the unions, the European unions, are are very different than the labor unions we have here in the states. In the states, we have basically enterprise level labor unions. Unions organize business to business. Um, Starbucks is obviously it's a coffee shop. But Starbucks, the the Starbucks, the employees that are organizing Starbucks, they're not organizing Starbucks as a corporation. They're they're organizing store by store. And so we have hundreds of petitions filed at stores all over the country. And there's individual elections that are being held on a store by store level. Europe doesn't have, and depending on the business, you may have um, a business might be organized by a union, but it might just be a piece of that business. Um, you might have, um, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing employees in a facility that organize, but shipping and receiving because they do different work are not included in that bargaining unit and they remain non-union. So you can have union workers working, you know, arm in arm with non-union workers in the exact same facility, just depends on how that, how the units are, are divvied up. Europe doesn't have these enterprise, by and large, doesn't have these enterprise level unions. Europe has sector level unions. So if it's not, I'm going to use Starbucks as the example, because that's what everyone's talking about. It's not Starbucks that's organizing, it's coffee shops that are organizing on the, on the, on the sector level. And so they have, they're having one union that's covering all employees in a particular sector. So you, which, and so when we say, can, you know, why does it, why does that succeed in Europe where it doesn't succeed here? It succeeds because there's no advantage or disadvantage to a business going to a, to an individual business going union or non-union because all the businesses in the same sector they're competing against are also in the union once that sector unionizes. 
so it's just a very different model of how um, of how labor is organized in Europe versus versus how it's organized here. I'm talking with Jonathan Hyman, and the topic is: Should I allow my company to unionize? Um, if if a if a union is successfully organized in a company. How does the company have to change? How, what changes are coming in store for management in terms of governance, how they operate, and so forth? You lose communication with employees. You can't communicate directly with employees anymore. You have to go through the union. Um, you can't, at least for the employees that are in the bargaining unit, you can't, um, you know, you can't give individual raises. You can't, uh, you know, all this needs to be bargained with the employer. Promotions. Uh, transfers, it's all governed by the contract. The contract becomes the Bible for the employer-employee relationship. Um, and you got to follow what the contract says in terms of when raises are given, how raises are given, um, you know, when and how employees can be disciplined, um, uh, uh, you know, who gets promoted, who gets transferred, when, how, why, etc. cetera. Um, you can't make changes on anything that's a mandatory subject of bargaining. It has to be bargained with the union. So, um, you know, mandatory subject, anything that is essentially, you know, core to terms and conditions of employment, that has to be bargained with the employer, the employee bargained with the employees uh, through the union. An employer just can't make a change to its employee handbook like it does, um, you know, in a non-union facility. Um, and then uh, you better get used to. Um, sitting in grievance meetings with union reps and possibly sitting, you know, in conference rooms with arbitrators um, talking about, uh, you know, discipline and termination decisions, because that's what happens. You, um, when you discipline or fire someone, um, you, those decisions get challenged by the union um, and you uh, uh, oftentimes lose as a manager, you oftentimes lose your ability to effectively uh, you know, control performance, discipline employees because an arbitrator uh, who live under their own rules of industrial justice might come in and say, um, we find this decision was, you know, unfair, arbitrary, unreasonable, and we're going to put this employee back to work. And so it is a whole different way for employers as to how they choose to, or how they're able to manage their, uh, their employees on a day-to-day basis. Can you think of or imagine a scenario in which it would be to a company's benefit to allow or even get on board with encouraging a unionization effort? I mean, we're seeing it now with Starbucks. Um, There are shareholders, large, um, large shareholders of Starbucks who are uh, petitioning the board saying, um, you know, you're hurting our share value uh, by taking this. By, by taking the aggressive anti-union stance that you are, uh, you are uh, you're, you're hurting the value of our investments. And so we're urging you maybe not necessarily to be pro-union, but at least adopt a union neutral viewpoint where you won't welcome the union with open arms, but you'll, but you'll at least stop um, being aggressively anti-union and just let the votes happen and let employees have their choice. Um, without you actively trying to discourage employees from from joining the union, and so in a large publicly traded company like Starbucks, um, where 
Um, you have, I mean, these are shareholders with, you know, tens of millions of dollars of investment that's on the line here. And they're saying, you know, you are severely decreasing the value of, of our investment. Um, I, I mentioned um, Fair State Brewing earlier. Uh, uh, Minneapolis Brewery, one of the first craft breweries um, in the country um, to organize. They said, their ownership said, you know, we view this as, as, a, as essentially a social justice issue. And so we, we will, if the employees want to unionize, we're going to welcome that, you know, we're going to welcome the union with open, with open arms. We view that as part of our obligation to help further a, uh, you know, a fair and equitable society, right? So they, they viewed it as a social justice issue. Um, so philosophically, there may be employers that think that way. Uh, economically, there may be employers that uh, who uh, uh, potentially see uh, being anti-union as significantly or materially diminishing the value of the company as maybe taking a, a less hostile position towards um, towards union. So there are certainly situations where a company may decide um, uh, either to welcome the union or at least be neutral with their position towards the union. Um, but that's um, that's largely going to be the minority view. John, this has been a good conversation. Um, I'm get through. I think half the questions I, I'd hope to ask. It's just too big a topic. So, there are likely questions that uh, either our listeners would have wished that we'd spent more time on, or just didn't ask at all. If somebody wants to follow up with you and ask about uh, about addressing a unionization effort in their business, can they contact you? And if so, what's the best way to do so? Uh, absolutely, uh, they can. They can contact me. Um, the best way is uh, they can find me at my, my firm's website, wickenslaw.com. They can contact me. Uh, they'll find all my contact information there. Um, I don't hide online either. So if you just Google like John Hyman Employment Lawyer, you'll find me, my blog, my LinkedIn, my Twitter, where I write about this stuff uh, all the time. And then in addition to my employment law practice, I also chair my firm's craft beer practice. And so you can also find me at ohiobeerlawyers.com. Uh, where you'll find information about that practice. And that takes you to my contact information as well. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Jonathan Hyman so much for sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please send in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Also, check out my LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. 